everybody and welcome to the Fireside Podcast, where our mission is to use story to better engage culture, equip the church, and to glorify God. I'm Houston, and I'm here with Jeremiah and Clayton. All right, and we're going to talk today about stories, of course, but more specifically about redemption as a theme in stories and how that applies to our lives today. So last week, we set out to think of a movie or a book, apparently. Well, it's... It's still a movie. Yes, yeah. But it was still, first a book. It's still, it's, right, it's okay. right. It's all right. I'm okay. Um, I'm in the clear. <laughs> so we, we set out to find a movie or a book or story, basically, that exemplifies redemption. JJ, since you probably have the best one, why don't you oh, go ahead and man. start? I don't want to start. Okay, that's fine. I can tell you what mine was, and it's going to be embarrassing. I don't know if you can see from my notes right here. Have you I, seen the movie Catch Me If You Can? Oh. <laughs> Why is that I know. No, it's bad. I just, like I said, I was saying this before we started. I sat and flipped through Netflix and HBO and I looked at our movie collection. I just tried to figure out a good story that exemplified redemption. And I came to two conclusions. The first is that no story exemplifies redemption as perfectly as scripture. The second is that every story has redemption in it, right? It's it's a big theme in all stories. The whole purpose of a story is that there was conflict, and usually the conflict, I guess not always, but usually the conflict is that something is wrong. And so redemption is a process of making it right. Yes. Cool. I like it. And we'll just wrap up right there. Thanks, guys, for listening, and join us next week. <laughs> okay, so Harry Potter. Harry Potter is the book slash movie that I chose to talk about. So there is this underlying story of redemption in Harry Potter. His life is an example of persecution where he's living amongst these people that just don't like him, (laughs) don't want him to be there. And obviously he was made for more. So there's something beyond his knowledge. And he gets a letter, and his life changes forever after that. But just beyond him, he is thrust into this world where at first he is amazed at it. And it's it's a wonderful, exciting, magical place. But he quickly finds out that even it has some issues. That, that it needs to be redeemed. The whole wizarding community just needs to be fixed. Because mm-hmm. there's something wrong. And, you know, he uh, unknowingly first has a big role in that. I think it's interesting if we're talking about redeeming the wizarding culture, then we would have to explain what needs redeemed in the culture. So to me, I think the magic is like the pivotal pivotal element of the story. And obviously, it's the pivotal element because he's a wizard. It's pivotal in the sense that the dangers to the wizarding community were the dark magic and the dark magic users, and the thing that needed redeemed was getting rid of them so that we could have the light people in control again. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And it's this constant struggle with good and evil. Mm-hmm. Everybody is subjected to fear in this community. and they Because need, of misusing. Right. right because misusing. of misusing the properties, or misusing the things that have been given to them. Mm-hmm. For evil. For evil. For right. evil, right. yeah. What was intended for good. What was intended for good is now being used for evil. And what I think is so interesting is when you watch through the whole series, there are so few things that are, are magical that are actually evil. Have you ever noticed that? 
So there's only what three unforgivable curses, mm-hmm. and they they embody the three unforgivable things: killing someone, causing excruciating pain, and controlling someone. Mm-hmm. No other, almost no other spells do that kind of stuff. Like the most dangerous thing that the kids learn in the school is what stupefy, or trificus total, whatever the, the freezing thing. You know, none of it is particularly dangerous. It is dangerous, I mean, if used incorrectly, but none of it is inherently, like, damaging. And what is, uh, we were just watching the sixth movie the other night, the spell that he made up, the sectum sempra, semprum, whatever. Yeah, the one that, like, just cuts The cut, yeah, yeah. The, the cut that they keep bleeding from. Right, that's probably the only other thing that's evil, right? Besides yeah. the, the curses. That's the only one I can think of right now. Yeah. And I'm sure our listeners at home will fact check us. Fact check us, right? (laughs) Wait, we're only two episodes in. We already disdain the listener. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. But yeah, I I just think about that. Like, there's no inherently bad things except for the three inherently bad things, right? Even, Even when Dumbledore and Voldemort fight, Dumbledore is doing all kinds of crazy stuff, right? turning things into different things and fire and blah, blah, blah. But all these things could have valuable purposes outside mm-hmm. of explicit combat. Right. And the few actual combat spells they learn are like disarming and stupefy. It's just interesting. It's really interesting. And so this community is has based itself on morality, essentially. So that even when they're educating, they explicitly don't educate these dark things, right? The few dark things that there are, they don't educate on. And so maybe you could probably make an argument that because they're in school, they're they're not exposed to all the darkness. But But it's right on the edges of the school where the darkness lingers in the forest. Yeah, but even in the forest, like the darkness is not magic. It's the werewolves, right, are dark, but they're people. Like, they're not magic spells. They're just people, right? And the people can be dark. But the magic is more or less inherently good. Except for these few fringe cases, right? Right. So there's this community that's needing a savior, essentially. Mm -hmm. Needing someone to come in and eradicate the evil that is present within the community. Because nobody can stop it. Because nobody can stop it. And so here comes Harry Potter... And he's the boy who lived. And he's the, he's the boy that lived. And now he... Bringing hope. He is bringing hope. Into the situation. Right. Because he has survived. Mm-hmm. And so we have hope to survive too, right? Correct. And he is he is in their likeness. I mean, he's a, he's just like them in every... Mm-hmm. Well, essentially in every way, right? Mm-hmm. But he's also got this thing that's, that's beyond him. That's not... That everyone else doesn't have. Mm-hmm. And then he, at the end, shoot, I mean, he kills himself for the sake of the community and chooses willingly to come back. He doesn't, he gets the option. He doesn't have to come back, mm-hmm. but he chooses to come back. So obviously we're making comparisons to Christ here and we're comparing Harry. As uncomfortable as I like to do that sometimes, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but we were talking in the last episode that we have this ability as Christians to basically hijack culture and get it to you know show our messages, right? Which you can't do that the other way around because you can't make the Bible say whatever you want it to. 
So we have to do it somewhere, right? No, but so, you know, if we're going to compare Harry to Christ, what is the purpose or value in us doing that? Why, why would we do that? Say that again. So if we're going to compare Harry to Christ, if we're going to say that he is a Christ-like figure, mm-hmm. a Messiah, why is that valuable for us to do? Why would we do that? Because we can use that story to allow others to put themselves in Christ's story. Because there's something on a relatable level for them that they're, I mean, they're, if they're not used to the Bible, but they're used to the Harry Potter story. It's like, oh, well, I can take this character and I can, I can see myself in this character. Well, now I can see myself in Christ's story. Mm-hmm. So it's a bridge. It's it like is. A bridge it's kind of like to... a bridge. Right, cool. right. I think that's, that's why we want to be culturally relevant. It's so hard to say sometimes. Culturally relevant. Because we want to bridge that gap between what we're used to in culture to the culture of the Bible. I think about Paul doing that mm. when he was at the Areopagus. And he used the things around him in that culture to preach to that culture. Right. I mean, that's exactly what Jesus was doing through the parables. It's what we talked about last time. Yeah, week. exactly. Yeah, yeah so we're, we're pulling out their truths and reimagining it, giving them the opportunity to view Christ in their own context. Mm. They had the puzzle pieces, and we're helping them put that puzzle together to, to see what it actually shows. Right. And that's why there are so many sermons that start off with illustrations such as this. Like, mm-hmm. They'll start off with a story that everyone can relate to and then brings it to Christ. It's that bridge. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that stands out for me in the Harry Potter universe is that a person was needed to fix the problem. It couldn't just go away. It would never just go away. And then also, a system couldn't fix the problem either. Because if you consider Dumbledore's army to be a system, like a group of people trying to make an effort, like a concerted effort, it didn't work. They didn't completely kill him last time, and they couldn't kill him this time either. It had to actually be the actions of Harry that could undo Voldemort. The one that essentially tried to take the Savior out of the world. Mm-hmm. Right? So we see in Revelation 12 where the dragon is coming to consume the baby. Mm-hmm. Right? It's kind of like almost that that same parallel there where this dragon figure is trying to take out the savior of the world. Because he, I think Voldemort knows something mm-hmm. about yeah, Harry. Yeah, the prophecy. For, yeah, exactly. yeah, the, yeah. Right? I mean, the prophecy could have been read two ways. Right. But it was dependent upon how even Voldemort saw it. Yeah, so if he went after Neville, then... Neville would have been the prophecy child. Correct. But since he went after Harry, it was Harry. Right. Which is not consistent with Christ. Right. Obviously. Right. But I think that is totally consistent. The whole idea that the, the Genesis 3.16 prophecy. Mm-hmm. The Genesis prophecy where God says that the serpent will strike the seed of Eve's heel, but he would crush the head. So that's like Voldemort picking out Harry to kill him to undo the prophecy, actually set the prophecy in motion. Yep. Just like how we understand that crucifying Christ was as much God's scheme as Satan's scheme. Mm -hmm. But the whole act of crucifying Christ was the crushing of his head. That was the redemption, was because scheme lined up with the plan. Right. Despite himself. Really? I mean, the reason why Harry Potter was able to do this in the first place is because of Dumbledore teaching him about love and showing or showing Harry that 
he had the the compatibility to love like no one else could. Mm-hmm. And so he he understood this himself and was able to take it upon himself to sacrifice himself for the community because of this love that mm-hmm. consumed him. Yeah, and I think that's an important part that we need to, to connect with Christ as well. So if we were to, to summarize the redemptive aspects of Harry Potter and connect it to Scripture, we would say that the community, the wizarding community, which is by extension the world, was endangered because of dark forces, and they needed redemption through a Messiah, Savior, Christ-like figure who came, and the only way that he could actually destroy the darkness was to die Mm. and then come back. I think uh, one more observation that I'd like to make is the fact that there are two worlds present within the story. There's the physical, like, our world, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's this wizard world. Hidden. Hidden, right. So that's almost like the spiritual and physical, the battle there that's constantly happening. So if we could encourage listeners with one thing, it's that don't just see this book or a series of books and think, oh, it's about magic, it's evil. That The magic is actually a storytelling tool to help us delve into these deep and very Christian subjects. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Because I remember growing up, I wasn't allowed to read the books. Yeah. So many of my friends were not allowed to read the yeah. books. Yeah, yeah. But I was a atheist heathen. <laughs> so you got them. <laughs> See, got I, didn't, I didn't grow up in the church, so, I mean, it didn't matter. I was watching Wayne's World at, like, two, so, you know. <laughs> not that that's, like, a miserable movie or anything. Yeah. But. See, I, I, Wayne's World is going to be my example of a redemption story. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. good not really. <laughs> Yeah, but so what I think is interesting, I wasn't allowed to read the books as a kid, and I had a context for these Christian themes, and then you were allowed to read the books as a kid, and you didn't have a context for these Christian themes, and like, which of us is the better for it? I think that there were sown seeds in my heart, like I wasn't responsive to them necessarily, but I got to interact with them, I got to mold over the issues, process it in a different way. Not necessarily directly, but indirectly, you know. And I think that is what we can do as the church as we discuss these cultural and bring out the truths. That's like that's the that's the point. Every story can be redeemed. Every cultural icon hopefully can, or at least be pointed out as not the way we live. Well, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back in a minute. Why do we need redemption? Is there even need for redemption? That's a good question. In, in our everyday lives. Obviously in movies and in stories it's very tangible. The wizarding world is fallen to some dark wizard and someone has to come save it. Right? That's very tangible. But in our lives it's sometimes hard for us to think that we even need redemption. And I think a lot of the times that's people's biggest problem to coming to the Lord is... They don't feel that they need that. They don't have any need for redemption. I think about, in our culture, especially a lot of Western cultures, really, and even like Japan, the society is so advanced, and civilly and culturally, or sorry, civilly and socially, the society takes care of people on such a level where they don't need a a god. And so, I think what, if they answer no to that, I think there's a question that they're trying to get at 
if they do answer no, and that's what are we doing here then? Like, what is the reason for my existence? And I think that is a, a fundamental question that a lot of the humanity has been trying to find an answer to. And, you know, we might say, oh, we invented God to answer that question. Okay, so the pertinent question that we're asking before we even get to redemption is why are we here? And we find ourselves here, and there's something wrong inherent in our experience. Like something isn't isn't right. But we don't know what that is, and so we're trying to find it out. And I think the Bible is is a, an attempt at answering the question, the question of why we're here. Well, it gives us a framework, like we talked about last time, to uh, ask these questions. So. Clayton linked us this, what is it? Oh, it's a YouTube seminar. A seminar, yeah, thank you. Uh, a seminar about the psychology of redemption by Jordan Peterson, and I'll put the link in the description so you listeners at home can listen to. But this seminar was, was excellent, and his, his topic was about the psychology of redemption. Anyways, he talked about redemption and why it's necessary from a psychological standpoint and how the themes of the Bible connect correctly to what we understand what we understand of psychology today. And so his original summation is that like you were saying God created order out of chaos. And he says he argues that there are essentially two states to be in, chaos or order, good or evil, light or darkness, so on and so forth. But these two opposing states to be in. And he kept using the term state in different ways. I think he referred to like a state of being and then also like a government state. Oh, but, yeah, yeah. Which was a little inconsistent and frustrating. But anyways, so he talked about our option as humans that as soon as we interact with the world, we are given an option between these two states. That the very first decision we have to make is... A, Figuratively, the first decision we have to make as humanity is whether or not we will interact with creation in a state of light or darkness, basically. And so the original temptation in the garden was this original choice, which was also interesting. As a side note, he said that the part of our brain that recognizes serpents also recognizes difficult decisions, I think he said. He said something to that effect. So he said, anthropologically, the snake is a perfect example of us faced with a difficult decision between good and evil, essentially, because it's the same part of our brain that actually recognizes snakes, and that as humans we have a, uh, I don't know, higher, we have a higher level of snake recognition ability out of the animal kingdom. You know, I mean, it sounds silly. Yeah. yeah, but but he said that that was directly connected, that our ability to recognize snakes is actually directly connected to our decision-making process somehow. I don't remember what he said. Listen to the seminar and you'll find out. So when Satan is posed as a snake to pose us the original ethical dilemma, it is perfectly characteristic of our anthropology that he be a snake. That is interesting. Well, when I, when I think of like the whole order and chaos thing, I'm thinking of what I was talking about kind of before we broke was, you know, the Harry Potter, the two worlds, two dimensions, two realities that you're living in simultaneously. 
I think a big thing is that people don't know how to define the reality. They don't know how to define, uh, you know, the struggles that are happening in their lives. They don't, they don't know how to define, you know, like, why is this happening to me? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and the Bible gives the answers for those definitions. It allows you to, to bridge the gap between those two realities, the, the inner struggles that you don't know how to deal with. The Bible allows you to deal with that, helps you to deal with that. It gives, yeah. you a, it gives you a definition. A context, right? A context, right. Yeah. Which is the importance of Genesis as a book is not that it teaches us so much what happened exactly, which it may. I'm not arguing that right now. But its purpose is not that it teaches us what happened exactly. It teaches us how we can insert ourselves into what happened and how to apply that to our lives today. Mm-hmm. Right, so I think this is a this is a classic preaching element nowadays. But drawing back on Adam and Eve in the garden, immediately in Scripture, in the first three chapters, we have been given the entire story of all of history. We've been shown that the earth was created from chaos and brought into order by God. That He's the Creator. That things belong to Him. That they're His. That He entrusted it to us as man that we've messed it up in one way or another, and that that we've failed, right? That we've failed and we've sinned, and that we are in need of redemption. That God set a plan in motion for redemption from the start. Which is essentially reconciliation, right? Like, that's the plan. He's trying to reconcile us to himself into an orderly state as opposed to the chaotic state that we're in currently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then, yeah, so redemption has multiple elements to it. Right. Reconciliation, the idea of bringing two things back together, essentially. Bringing a relationship back, bridging a gap, rebuilding a relationship, so on and so forth. But also, there's this whole aspect of recreation in it. Mm -hmm. Because if we're in a state of chaos, God creates order from chaos. And so he has to, or he, rather, he recreates us back into order from the chaos that we've walked into. The Genesis account shows us essentially the story of the fall is what it's always called. That's what it's usually referred to. The idea that things were were set in motion in a correct way and that we actually introduced chaos to the order and that God set in motion a plan to turn the chaos back into order. So what Jordan Peterson was saying in the seminar was that our process and our lives of changing from our personal state of chaos to a personal state of order, or in regular terms, going from death to life, our process of going from death to life is a continual series of multiple micro-deaths, is what he was calling them. But he's referring to the idea of, Paul says that we must be living sacrifices. And so he said, how do you become a living sacrifice is that you constantly die. Right. Is what he be said. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so Jordan Peterson argued that these multiple microdeaths, what he called them, were really just a, are, are a series of corrections that we make in our lives. We die to one more small portion of ourself you know, every day or however often. And so this is the path to... Life And what he actually says is, I believe that the New Testament is psychologically correct in that multiple micro-deaths 
and corrections produce a state of proper adaptation. So again, in, in I think layman's terms, something that appeals to me instead of all of these big words is to live, you must die. Correct. Right? Right. Christ said that if you want to keep your life, you must lose it. So what he argues is that psychologically, our, our best way to interact with the world is to be in this state of proper adaptation. And to be, to get to that state, we must be dying constantly. Letting go of our previous ideas and concepts that are holding on to us. And... Which to sum all of that up that we just talked about, we came to the conclusion that that is Christianese for sanctification, right? Yes. Yeah. This is exactly yeah. what sanctification is. Right. Right. Because we believe that redemption is as much a single moment in time as it is a lifelong process. Right? Jeremiah, you are saying earlier that a big part of redemption is reconciliation. So Christ's death reconciles us to him. Right. Draws us back, bridges the relationship, repairs the relationship. Mm-hmm. The equally important part is that we are being recreated and we're not just reconciling the relationship, we are being redeemed and then we're being fixed, right? And Jordan Peterson says that that process is the micro-deaths. Mm-hmm. But in church, it, you know, we call it sanctification. Right. Yeah. Right, I mean, even within that, it's it's a it's a process, right? I think first yes. you, you are reconciled, because you have to reconcile your relationship with God first before he can even reconcile his relationship with you, right? Hmm. Or the other way around. Other way around. Yeah, okay, sorry. <laughs> well, but I, I think the idea of what you're saying is yeah. that we have to walk towards him. Right. Yeah, we have to be willing to. He's constantly speak. pursuing us, wanting us to reconcile our relationship with him. There you go. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. we have to be willing to reconcile our relationship with him before that can happen. Right. Is that a better way of putting yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The story of the prodigal son is a great example of that. The father was always waiting for the son to come home, right? but he didn't force him to come home. He waited until the son set out on the path. Right. But as soon as he saw that his son was on the path home, he ran out to him. Right. So yeah, the process is that happens first. Mm-hmm. Once that happens, then you can be recreated. The re- recreation transformation process happens in that moment. Which again is, is a much part of redemption as the reconciliation in the first place. Mm-hmm. So is there a third dimension to... Redemption. We have reconciliation, recreation. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. Not that there has to be. I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah. No. That's that's a good question. I mean, was I guess sanctification would fall under redemption. I guess that could be almost a third dimension to that as well, because once we are recreated and start the transformation process, that's when sanctification occurs, because we're continually being transformed in that moment. I guess. I I was thinking of sanctification and. Recreation is the same okay, so the essential same thing. thing. Okay, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that can all just be yeah. tied into one. But it all it all taps into the nature of God, right? Right, like a, a reconciliation with Him taps into His desire to be in relationship with us, and our recreation, our transformation, so on and so forth, all tap into His Creator God nature. And so, again, this just draws back to what we were saying. In Harry Potter, that our situation can't fix itself. That if it could, it would. Right. Right. So if if our the state we were in could solve the state we were in, it would cease to exist. Hmm. 
And so we need this outside force to come in and set things in motion. So we're going to take another short break, and then we will come back with the third and final section of our podcast. All right, so as we try to wrap up today, we're going to talk about our place in the story. You know, we're talking about all these topics, or this, we're talking about all of these concepts of redemption and and where we see them in culture and, and what even redemption means. But, you know, what I always think at the end of these kinds of things is, well, so what? Mm-hmm. What's the application? What do we do? What are we going to walk away with from here? And, and JJ, you were saying something really cool in our break that I think is a perfect example of our application of the idea of redemption in stories. Yeah, so in order to understand the full context of the story, you have to reread the story because the first time you read through it, you get a broad generalization of who the characters are, you know, like what the story is. But the more you read a story, the more you pull from it. And the more that you're able to put yourself in that story is the overall concept that I was rolling with there Yeah. during our break. And so what Houston was saying, um, kind of to, to caveat off that, is that we have to be fully immersed in the story to understand where our place is in the story. Just as Jesus was. He was fully immersed in Scripture, and he was able to better put himself into the story and better able to bring others into the story because he knew it from forward to back, right? Like he just, he was completely immersed in the story. Which I think seems almost obvious. Like, well, duh, right? It, it feels like, well, duh. But at the same time, it, it, it's, it eludes us so much. We don't take the time to re-examine and re-examine and re-examine the story. But, and Clayton, you were talking about this, that in, the, in Jordan's seminar, he was talking about, what, what did you say Jesus was? He was the master of tradition. Yeah. And that because, because he was a master of tradition, he, he looked at the past and embraced it to a certain extent. And because he accepted and, and made peace with it, only then was he able to move forward from that. And so even in that, like we said with those micro deaths, we... When we accept the past, it is only then when we, when we can move forward and be redeemed. And in the process, we're redeemed. And in the process, the past is redeemed mm. as well. Mm-hmm. And, and we can finally look forward uh, to the future. Yeah, That's good. I, I, I like that you said the past is redeemed too. I think as a story device, Christ's death and resurrection existing essentially in time makes so much sense, right? Because as a story device, we talked about this last week, that Augustine, at his conversion, reinterpreted his life up to his conversion through that new lens and processed it and, and understood the value of that pre-resurrection, or pre, sorry, he understood the value of that pre-conversion time only after the conversion. And again, as a story device, that makes so much sense that Christ came, lived, died, and rose again at, at the central point in history and not at the beginning of history because the story has to be developed. The context has to be developed. The need 
has to be developed so that when he comes on the scene, we understand why he's here and we understand the purpose of it. And he does redeem through history. When, when, when Christ is crucified, when Christ is crucified, you can just hear Genesis 3.16 echoing in the back that the serpent bit his foot, but he's going to crush the head. That, that action was, was prophesied. That story element was, was foreshadowed at the very beginning. That was the beginning, was this foreshadowing of, of the central event of Christ. And I think, again, like if you think scientifically or even theologically, why did Christ come and die and raise again when he did, and not before, not after, so on and so forth, I think it's a difficult a difficult concept to process. And there's the classic question, what, what happens to the people who were faithful before Christ? I think that's a, a fair enough question, but when we look at it as a story, it makes sense because the, the climax redeems the buildup, right? Yeah. And I think uh, another big aspect of just story in general is that it has to, like, it has to be real. Something has to feel real about that story. Stakes, there have to be stakes, yeah, right? I mean, like, you look at the Apostle Paul, like, he went from Saul to Paul, right? Like, when he was Saul, there was just, like, this murdering, vicious man. Mm-hmm. And then the story became so real to him that he completely transformed. So, like, that's the same with us. Like, that story needs to be real in our lives because if it's not real, then... It has no power. It has no power at all. So there we go. That's the big application. Let your, let the story be real. <laughs> yeah. And how do we do that? By getting in the story. Right. By becoming a master of tradition, as Peterson said, or in other words, know the story. Mm-hmm. Know your story, your context, what's led you to the point you're at, and then look at the story of the world and how... Allowing the cross, because that's the lens we're looking through. Yes. Allow the cross... To be your lens into the past, to redeem those moments mm-hmm. that are very unhelpful or bad, or yeah. yeah, it's the cross which reveals the real moments in your life for you to deal with. That's good. We had a good time here today. Yeah, it's always a good time. <laughs> Clayton's rolling his eyes at me. We had a good time here today talking about redemption and story. And again, we're going to link in the description Jordan Peterson's seminar. Highly recommend you watch it. Mm. He says a lot of good things. He looks through a psychological and anthropological lens, the story of scripture, and it's very valuable, I think. I'll I'll make sure to watch it. Right. And this weekend. Right. Yeah. Listeners at home, when you've already watched it before Jeremiah has, you'll (laughs) You can give me you can give me flag for it. That's fine. Right, right. What are we talking about next week? Yes. Good question. For a long term goal, we've talked about bringing on guests to discuss topics that they're well-versed in. A mm-hmm. uh, professor that teaches at Ozark, Ozark Christian College, a nearby school, is our local authority on Revelation, and so we're hoping to have him on in a couple weeks. Well, I think he's a little more a little more than local, but that's okay. <laughs> I would, yeah. He has a very well-thought-out perspective of the book, and that is one big reason we would like to have him on the show. Yeah, because a big purpose in this podcast is that we want to help people have the story to interpret the Bible. Mm-hmm. And Shane, Shane, Dr. Shane J. Wood is, is the man that we are speaking of. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his perception of the book of Revelation is that it is essentially a fifth gospel, that we see 
the Bible more clearly through the lens of revelation. And so once we understand that, that we book, see Christ more clearly. We see Christ more clearly through the the book of Revelation. Yeah. Uh, but he also would would challenge the, the whole book. Yeah. So again, we're going to try to have him on in the next couple weeks, ask him some questions, hopefully create an episode that can be valuable for people down the road to have a better context on how to read the book. So join us next week on the Fireside Podcast where we talk about love, love stories, love as a storytelling device, love as a story theme, love as the object of a story, so on and so forth. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about love since Valentine's Day is coming up and we like to mooch on the calendar. It's a good biblical topic to talk about. Yes. So. Has a few things to say about it. Yeah.